Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. All right. We're doing this, I guess. I'm talking to you Wednesday night, January 6th. And I don't even know what to make of what's going on right now. The Capitol building was charged by a bunch of rioters today, insurgents, terrorists, attempting to keep Donald Trump in power, essentially. And the images coming out of Washington right now are frightening and terrifying. And I hope give people who voted for Donald Trump some pause and realize that this is what everybody has been fearing. I didn't think it was going to come to this. Maybe I'm optimistic, but when the election was so clearly decided in Joe Biden's favor, and it seemed like every court case was being dismissed without being heard or was being ruled against Trump's favor, I just said, this is over. You know, this guy's got a fragile ego, but this will go away. Joe Biden will be inaugurated. That'll be the end of it. And maybe Trump will hold some rallies every now and then. Maybe some cable stations will give him coverage. Maybe he gets a TV deal, book deal, whatever. But he's going to have his weird little fringe audience, and that's it. I didn't really expect a coup to happen. And I think that's what we're witnessing. And I don't want to get too into specifics right now because I feel like this situation has just over the past four or five hours completely developed and changed. And probably by Thursday morning when the show goes live, things will be different as well. And maybe if you're listening to this Friday, Saturday, or you know, two weeks from now, two months from now, whatever, things will be different. So I don't want to get too much into specifics, but I just want to say that I'm very fearful for where we're headed as a country right now. This is a very dangerous path. But if you've been with this show for a while, you know that I've talked to a lot of different people that have sounded the alarm bells in various different ways. Probably in the biggest way with Sarah Kenzier. Her amazing book is Hiding in Plain Sight, and I had a chance to talk to her over the summer. And she lays it all out and has been for a long time on her podcast and elsewhere. If you haven't heard that interview yet, go check it out. Juliet Kayyem from CNN, Talia Lavin. Talk to a lot of different people about the subject. It scares me. Here we are. I'm hoping that today's show will help get your mind off of what's going on in the world right now. We'll give you a boost of optimism. Craig Dentron is my guest today. He has been show running American Portrait for PBS, which is this huge project that spans digital and broadcast and a bunch of things that it's all self-shot stories from all across the country, from people talking about what it means to be American. And most of it was done during the pandemic, so it has that sort of undertone to it. It's a four-part docuseries that premiered on PBS this past week. It started on Tuesday, and there's three more parts still to air, so check that out on your local PBS station. It looks at the fundamental question of what does it mean to be an American right now. What is the American dream in 2020 when this was recorded and in 2021 when we're living now? What are the values that we hold? What are our work lives? 
look like? And what does the fight for racial justice look like? Craig and his team bring an optimistic look at all this. And I think it's a message of unity that is welcome right now. Certainly for me, I think it's important to remember that the people that are actively trying to overthrow the government to keep the host of The Apprentice in office, these are a small group of insurgents. I think most Americans, at the end of the day, are fundamentally good. They want good things for their families. And Craig talks about it in the interview. We are an optimistic people. We are people that are looking always at tomorrow. And I hope that as the next two weeks get more tumultuous and we try to get through all this together, that we do look to each other and to our shared strength as Americans. And especially once a new Congress is seated and a new Democratic Senate and Joe Biden is inaugurated, I hope we have a chance to really revisit our definition of American and how do we make it more inclusive? How do we make it beneficial to everybody in this country and not, uh, not step on people the way that we have been and not divide people the way that things have been? Craig also was one of the early producers on the MTV show True Life, which was a documentary series, and I watched it growing up. I really enjoyed that show. And what I like about American Portrait is it reminds me a lot of True Life, but it's kind of the grown-up version. It's like if you grew up on MTV, now you can watch PBS and get something that's very reminiscent of your adolescence and you know teenage years, but from a newer perspective, from a more grown-up perspective, a more mature perspective. So yeah, I, uh, I'm a fan of American Portrait. In a way, I feel like this is a perfect interview for today and just this moment that we're living through. And I don't know what it's going to look like. I literally don't know, by the time you hear this, what kind of country I'm going to wake up in tomorrow as I'm recording this on Wednesday night. But let's try to stay optimistic. And I think that's what Craig and his team have done with American Portrait. All right, here it is, my interview with Craig Dentrone. I want to start by just asking sort of generally how this quarantine period has been for you, you know, since since March, I guess. How uh, how has it been treating you? Well, it's been, <laughs> I'm sure, no surprise to anyone, you know, who's listening. It's been the most unique and in some ways most challenging point of my career. <laughs> sure. Although we, on this particular project, um, PBS American Portrait, we have kind of a unique situation in that the project was always conceived as a crowdsourced uh, storytelling initiative ah. where we would have people all over the country um, recording themselves and sending in videos or photos with captions or text stories into the website that we built with PBS. And so it was always conceived that way. It was conceived in 2019 that way, is essentially as a, a type of remote production, not so much a remote filming, but having people you know film it themselves yeah. uh, around the country we had planned to do some filming ourselves but uh but that had to be uh shut down uh, pretty quickly i think in march of 2020 so the big challenge for us was not so much the production part of it because the production was always considered to uh to be remote but it was really the team building and the, the team aspect of it right. of having to um, and especially the post-production aspect 
of all of our team members uh, being in their own homes uh, individually and us never being in the same room at the same time. Um, and it's a, it's a very large team uh, because it's a multi-platform project that goes across the web and social, but it's also a TV show. Um, there are TV specials. Then there's also a book in progress. And we're making a public art project. And wow. then there are murals going up. So there's a lot of different aspects to it. So it's a large team that has to work together and coordinate without ever being in a conference room or in the hallways of the same building or anything right. like that. Well, that's like just as you're explaining sort of all the tentacles of this project, I can imagine it would be super helpful to just have a giant whiteboard or, you know, a bulletin board or something where you're moving cards around and just, you know, trying to figure out like how all these different pieces fit together and, and inform each other and to not be able to have some sort of physical manifestation like that that you can sort of all react to in real time. Like how have you been able to sort of replace the function of, of a whiteboard or a bulletin board? Well, we, we've tried uh, several different project management tools um, and, uh, because there's a lot of different um, people and departments working on the project, um, we're using a few different ones at once, uh, every, sort of different departments using the ones that they're comfortable with. And and that has helped in terms of like needing the whiteboard or needing to move cards around to look at the structure of a TV episode. Sure. You know, the digital tools really do help in that way. It's the, you know, the communication you would get just from being in the same you know, office of, of seeing each other in the hallway, the little bits of information that get passed around, you know, just from being at the coffee machine at the same time as the person who's working on another aspect of the project. Those are the things that we really miss and have have had to try to find other ways to make up for them. Um, You know, mostly through Slack and, you know, lots and lots of Zooms, and I think it's got okay, but but I think those are the those are the aspects of the creative process. Right? I think you know we can't possibly make up for while in quarantine and have to just look for ways to to do our best on them. Yeah, I feel like one of the other challenges. I know when I've talked to other people, like everybody being separate like that everyone's kind of on their own schedule now too, because, you know, in a lot of cases, kids are home and just trying to juggle family responsibilities. It's not the same as being in an office where, you know, by, you know, nine or nine thirty, everyone's going to be at their desk and, you know, by four thirty or five trickling out, it's like, you know, I've got this two hour window here in the morning before my wife has a call. And then, you know, we have to switch like have those sort of interpersonal factors played into the collaborative process as well. Yeah, they have. I mean, we, we've, we we understand that everybody's at home. I have kids, um, you know, and and sometimes you know I'll be in the middle of a meeting and have to you know answer their questions. They're they're uh, in school at home, mostly at right. home. And a lot of our team members do, and I think everyone is super understanding about that and, and supportive. But one thing that we've done is you know we've had um, regular morning kind of massive morning Zoom meetings. Um, uh, almost every day we st- we were doing them every day and now we're doing them every other day or so yeah. at 10 a.m really short like 10 15 minutes basically just to kind of do what you were saying where we sort of mark the start of the day yeah right. <laughs> to say okay we're we're, we're at work now yeah and uh, and i think it's, it's not so much for i mean not at all for us to check in on people but people have found that really helpful have that this this morning meeting um even if it's super super short that just gives them a little structure to your day uh, and, and kind of mark the, you know, the start of it. So we've just done it at 10 a.m. And, and, you know, we've had as many as you know, 70, 80, 90 people on oh, a Zoom, wow. you know, almost every day. But it, and it's been really fun. And, and in some ways it has 
uh, helped with um, the the social aspect of it. Sometimes we just kind of get on there and, and make jokes, and you know, just make each other laugh, and then we go on with our day. But most of the time, we'll we'll very quickly go through, you know, what's happening and what are the major updates on the project that we need to discuss. Yeah, I, I'm curious too, sort of in talking about the the development of this project. Like, I feel like March 2020 through just a huge wrench in sort of how we view the world. Uh, and then obviously George Floyd and, you know, Black Lives Matter and things over the summer was sort of another progression of that. I wonder, amidst all that, the social change that both the pandemic and, and George Floyd brought, did that alter your direction at all or change your approach? It did for us um, in terms of um, even just the creative of the project. You know, the, this project, uh, American Portrait, was was conceived to be a portrait of America, yeah. a, a self-portrait of America, and and a portrait of what. Uh, and really, the heart of the project is this question of what does it really mean to be American today? Right. And so, of course, these things—the the pandemic, the the economic um, collapse with the pandemic, uh, and of course, the movement for racial justice—these um, are all essential to what it means to be American today. And so, um, when we first uh, went into quarantine, the very first thing we did was we produced a half-hour special. Um, it took us a little under five weeks, um, a 30-minute special that aired nationally on PBS called In This Together. And it was entirely um, stories from people around the country in the very first weeks of the uh, of the lockdowns and the pandemic and trying to show you know what, what was happening around the country. That was the first broadcast uh, documentary that we made separately. Yeah. <laughs> Where we had to figure out kind of instantly, like as soon as we went into lockdown, figure out instantly how to create and deliver and broadcast um, a half hour television show in a little little under five weeks from then without access to any of the um, you know post production or delivery facilities that we that we usually do. Um, and our post team did just a phenomenal job of quickly figuring it out and putting a system in place where we were able to do it. Wow. Were they like literally like cutting on laptops and stuff then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, we, we, did, we did some uh, delivering of, of, of systems or pieces of systems to people's homes. But, you know, the big uh, change for us was just the, you know, the amount of time um, it takes to basically to move some of the pieces around, especially as we get close to finishing and delivering those very, very, you know, those huge files for a broadcast television show um, that we had to just factor in the extra time there. And also the extra time of never being able to sit in the same room together with, you know, the various um, people who are involved in making some creative decisions around it and not being able to kind of watch it at once, but it worked um, and we were able to deliver it. And I think that I think it came out really well and then people were appreciative of it. And uh, it it aired uh, the first week of May. Uh, in 2020, and it kind of became the warm-up act, I guess, for these uh, exactly. these series of films that followed. Yes, yeah, we learned a lot. Yeah, I, I want to dive into uh, you know the the broadcast piece specifically of American Portrait, and you know these four one-hour uh, specials. Yeah. Uh, they're wide ranging in that they feature a lot of voices, but you know each each hour kind of focuses on three main subjects, and I just wonder, like the process of casting those individuals that the, whose stories you chose to feature like what did that casting process look like yeah we um we, you know we have uh, you know th- thousands and thousands of people who are contributing to american portrait and continue to every day and we knew that we wanted to take some of those stories and kind of elevate them in the documentary series so that so that there was a long form story for people to follow uh, as well as being able to see these um you know choruses of, of hundreds of people around yeah. the country and they contributed and we were looking for stories that we felt, you know, were in some way emblematic 
of the topic that we were trying to explore, but also really revealed some things that are common across the country where people could look at the stories and be compelled by them and want to know what's going to happen, but also see themselves in it. And so we, our team just reached out to lots and lots and lots of the people who contributed uh, and also called, you know, organizations and institutions around the country and asked them to participate until we found a lot of different people and um, and just narrow them down, narrow them down, and, and eventually settled on the people that uh, that are in the series as as those kind of main focus participants. But we always wanted to make sure that it really was a a collage and and shared people from all over the country. So um, you'll see these three main stories that you follow through the hour, but the interweaving through them are these um, uh, collages of hundreds of people from across the country. And in every episode, you'll see. Of content from just about every state and territory. Um, and a couple of the episodes cover every single state and territory. Wow. Um, on those sort of three main subjects, like having to having to ask these people to film, and I know that was the goal from the beginning, which that was one of my questions going in was like, you know, was this a, a product of COVID or, you know, was that the goal? But like figuring out just, I guess, the technology piece of it, I'm curious sort of how they actually executed that. And how much direction you guys gave them? Because I, I definitely noticed, you know, like I'm a producer and director as well. And yeah. like there, there's great wide shots, for example, that just help <laughs> stitch things together. And it, it's not something that n- people naturally would do. Yeah, you know, it's it, it was amazing and, and revelatory for us working with people because it really did depend on the person. Yeah. Um, some people uh, needed a lot of help uh, and direction, but help mostly with the technology of being able to, um, you know, get their video files to us um, to, you know, to use Dropbox and, you know, the kind of the nuts and bolts of it, of just getting the, getting the material to us. Sure. But, you know, one thing that we were really interested in, you know, and a little bit of the gamble that we took going into this is, you know, we knew going into it that, that every person is a storyteller, right? Every, that's every human being is a storyteller and that's what makes us human. But the question for us was, well, is everyone a filmmaker? Yeah, <laughs> right. um, you know, can everyone film themselves in a way where we could, you know, at the ever at the very minimum, he, see and hear them, but also, you know, in ways that are, they're interesting and compelling and really capture, you know, what they're doing and, and the emotions behind them. And, um, you know, the answer of like, in a lot of ways was yes, you know, YouTube and Instagram and TikTok, you know, that have, people have created a new, you know, visual vocabulary, a shared visual vocabulary um, because of that, of this technology. And, you know, there are a lot, a lot of people out there who really know how to use their camera and, yeah. and, and know how to use it well, you know, and, and do things that we would have never expected. And I think that's been the real uh, revelatory part for us is that, you know, if it were, if it were a remote shoot where there was someone there, you know, uh, uh, who was acting in the typical kind of uh, director photography uh, role for us, where basically tell them, you know, what to shoot. And, uh, and we were doing it remotely and telling them over the phone or by text or, you know, what, what we think they should shoot. It would have looked completely different from what we got by really, you know, encouraging people to, to, to use their own creativity and think about their own ways of of recording it. Um, and just did things that we never would have expected, but our, our producers did work very, very closely with people to encourage them to film a lot, you know, because, uh, it can, it could be annoying, of course, to anyone who's 
who's ever been the subject of a documentary to the amount of filming that needs to be done. And we're asking them to do it themselves. So a lot of encouragement, but also really troubleshooting through the technical difficulties and limitations of getting all that material to us in a timely way. Yeah. Well, and I could imagine like, it's one thing to be a documentary subject and to have a crew follow you around and to not really have control over what they're seeing at that moment or, you know, but it's a, it's a very different thing for the person to be both the subject and kind of the director DP. And like, I, I, I don't know, for me anyways, I feel like I would feel the urge to edit myself a lot more in terms of just, you know, how I would shoot it and, you know, what angles I would show and when I'm recording, when I'm not. And it, it feels like what you guys got back was was very unfiltered. I wonder, just like, did you have to come up against that sort of, you know, self-editing piece of it at all? You know, that is one of the most interesting things about all of this to me is that the dynamic between a, a filmmaker and, and their subject, uh, with a, even with a very small camera crew, is completely different from the dynamic that you see where a person is just filming themselves often by themselves. The way that people talk when it's just their phone is kind of like inner monologue, like Mm. a way, you know, it's, it's more of a, like a pure access of the way people, you know, actually speak and think. And you could see that, you know, the amount of time that takes people to get comfortable with having a film crew around them, um, you know, if they ever do get comfortable, it, it was completely different here where people right away are almost thinking of, you can see that people are kind of thinking, well, I'm just talking to my phone uh, and, you know, whatever they use from this, they'll use, but they're not consciously thinking of the producer is right there. The, the DP is right there. The camera's right there. What should I say? And in many ways, I think people are, are less uh, filtered hmm. in, in this uh, dynamic when, when they can just film themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There were moments where some of the subjects were talking directly to the camera and, they didn't quite get to this language, but it had the echo of like a, you know, hey guys that you'd hear like on a YouTube, like on a vlog yes. or something, you know? And that was interesting to me. And, and it occurred to me that like, that functionally, this isn't much different than a vlog, but you guys have brought a whole layer of filmmaking to it that I, I think adds a lot more narrative and a lot more structure. And just, it allows me to enjoy the story in a way that I wouldn't have if it were just a vlog, but but functionally, like in the production piece of it, that's essentially what it is. Yeah, yeah, and 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 thank you for that. I'm I'm so glad to hear you say that about about um, you know the story and, and and the way the story works. You know, differently from from a vlog, and it being more closer to you know what you see in any kind of narrative nonfiction. But I think um, the what we were able to bring to it is that the the narrative uh, structure. But also uh, what we can do that you can't get through, let's say, a YouTube channel or a vlog is just the mass of stories. You know, Mm. we're having built this um, website where we can collect from all over the country and collecting now. I think, you know, we're we're getting to about 13,000 stories right now (laughs) Um, and being able to sift and sort them uh, in the ways that that we've that we've created kind of on the back end to be able to go through all that material and then to be able to put it together into something coherent, cohesive, where you can hear, you know, maybe a, a couple hundred voices in an hour, uh, but it still feel um, uh, coherent and cohesive. I think that's kind of what we really can bring to the table with this self-shot material that you can't necessarily get from someone's YouTube channel or or from their own blog. 
Yeah. It's funny because sort of reading your background, realizing you were one of the producers of True Life on MTV and, and helped create that show. And my memory of that, you know, like I'm I'm a kid of the 90s and you know, early yeah. 2000s. Like I, I grew up with that show. And, um, yeah. I, and I'm watching this. I'm like, oh, this is like a PBS version of that. And I wanted to sort of refresh myself and, and just like looked up. I think I found like a greatest, you know, true life highlights or something on YouTube. And I, I was amazed how much less intimate it felt in hindsight. Like, I, I think, you know, 20 years ago, what you guys were doing was really revolutionary. But this this self tape piece of it feels so much more intimate than you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. I just I, I felt I felt the DPs there. I felt them zooming in and stuff when I watched old True Life episodes and like. When I see this, it's it's just so much more raw. But it, but it's interesting, sort of the shared DNA there, I guess. Yeah, and well, I, you know, I I, uh, I guess a leopard can't change its spots entirely. And that, <laughs> that show is really in my DNA because I worked on it for so long, and right. like you said, pretty much from the beginning. But I I totally agree with you that the the dynamic is different, and you know, just knowing of, of having been out in the field with people filming True Life episodes. You know, they, the people are conscious of the fact that you're there with a camera and that it's going to be on MTV. Yeah. And they think about it. And often they, they'll let their guards down, you know, eventually and some people very quickly. But it, it is a TV show and people are, are aware of it. I think with, with this um, and maybe it's a function of the fact that it's new also, um, you know, True Life had been on for so long that when you went out to film with someone, they kind of knew exactly what was what right. they were getting into and what it would be like in the end. Or they had some idea of what it would be like in the end. With this, people don't, and they're kind of just taking a leap of faith, and uh, that may also explain why why people are being so kind of raw and honest and and real throughout. Yeah, it was interesting too in the the first one, this I Dream uh, episode. Uh, there's this this love story between this couple, Tyler and Bree, that ultimately ends up not working out, uh, at least in the context of the film, but. Yeah. Like, there's a moment where I was watching that where I was like, if I were them right now, like, you know, the first month or so that they're filming, they're in love and, and making this relationship work. And they've been high school sweethearts and all this uh, and, and are now living together. But then they break up. And like, for me, I feel like I wouldn't want to film after that. Like, I, it was I feel like it would have been this fun little project that we were doing as a couple. And then when that relationship ended, I may have just sort of pieced out on you guys. <laughs> like, I, I wonder sort of in working with them, you know, was, was, did that factor in at all or were they motivated to, to keep going and keep telling their story separately? Yeah. I really got to give credit to, to the producer who worked on that and the, the production team that worked on that, who were in contact with, with them, you know, nearly every day, because I think, yes, they did reach a point where they, you know, probably didn't want to uh, continue filming themselves as much as they did. And it was really through encouragement and just talking it through and talking about, you know, why it was important to to share these things that they that they did it. And not to say that they wouldn't have done it. I mean, they, you know, all credit to them for, for doing it and, and for filming. But it, there was a relationship and bond that they formed with um, the producer who was talking to them, uh, you know, nearly daily or, um, you know, at least a couple of times a week where they were able to have those honest conversations about you know, why they should capture what was happening and the fact that we would put it together in a way that that was true to who they were and uh, and to what they were going through. Mm. But that that takes so much trust, too. I mean, like, like you say, like this, this wasn't really an established entity yet. You know, nobody knew as they're filming it, what it was going to look like or how you guys were going to treat it. Yeah. And you, you know, that, that brings up a really uh, important point about the um, quarantine production, you know, especially for documentaries, the trust that you build with, with the person that you're filming, you know, 
Um, I was always kind of taught, you know, uh, by uh, my mentors in, in, in doc filmmaking that, you know, if you're going to do a, a verite type of doc where you're, you're following people around, you go, you just go spend time with them with a camera. Yeah. Um, you just, you just go to that, you know, and follow them around and, and talk with them for days or, you know, sometimes weeks before you actually start filming things so that you can, you know, build a trust and also that you can understand that person really well and they right. can understand what you're looking for um and, and what you're trying to do with your project and there's not that opportunity here um and you know the producers on this um really had to do that work over the phone uh and by text and by zoom um to just keep an open line of communication and to establish the fact that you know they could they could trust us with their self-filming uh, material with their stories with their you know, intimate details of their life yeah well, and that that point, too, of just, you know, camping out with your subjects and, and really understanding their world, like, for some reason, that thought was in my head in particular in the, the second episode, the I Work episode, uh, the portrait of Laura, who's the truck driver. She's a long haul truck driver and, you know, essentially lives in a truck with another woman and they're switching, you know, every 12 hours who, who's driving this big rig. But yeah. like, I, I don't know, for me, I know that like when I've produced stuff, I can bring a different angle to it than the subject often does. And like, just like, you'll, you'll notice something just be like, Oh wait, that's where you heat up your food or, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. Um, but not having that to have to rely on your subject for not just the footage, but the entire, you know, your, your global view of their world, I guess, (laughs) like that puts you at a disadvantage, I suppose, but it probably also brings out some creativity. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I know exactly what you mean that, you know, as an outsider, the things that you're observing, because they're fresh and new to you, are, are interesting, right? right? Like, like you said, like, well, where do you, how do you make your breakfast if you live on a truck uh, 24 hours a day? That is interesting to us. It may not be interesting to them. They've done it every day for years and years and years. Right. And it might be in even a detail that they wouldn't even mention. But um, if you were there, you go, wow, let me, you know, talk about that. Yeah. And I think there was some of that, you know, where where people. Are, we're kind of, um, you know, skipping over things, uh, you know, that were really interesting to us and us and our producers saying, hey, wait a second, what about that? Would you film yourself talking about that? And and will you will you capture that the next time it happens? And I think that really just happened through looking at the material and and, and talking with them. Or one good thing about the remote production and, and people filming themselves is you could look at the material pretty much right away. Mm-hmm. Our producers were able to um, have that back and forth pretty quickly where they could see what the person filmed and then ask follow-ups and, and say, Oh, that was amazing. Would you, would you film this the next time it happens? And asking, what are you planning to do? And when you do that, do you mind filming that? That kind of thing. Wow. What, what was the commitment on the subjects part? I mean, were they filming, I don't know, an hour a day, three hours a day, <laughs> 20 minutes a day? Like did, did, was there any sort of parameter around that? No, we, we never set a minimum amount that they should film. It was really, um, just working with them to film the things that were relevant to, um, you know, what was happening in their life that they were featuring in the episode. And, um, you know, and our producers also were very about trying to not to burn people out. You know, right. we know, obviously nobody gets paid to do this. They, you know, the, the people um, participating, the people you see in the documentaries, they're not paid. And uh, it is something that they have to do on their own time. Sometimes, you know, maybe to the annoyance of their family members uh, who maybe don't want to, uh, you know, have be filmed uh, having dinner. But, sure. you know, the person has, has said, I'm going to mount the my phone uh, on the table here and, and just let it run, you know, as we're eating dinner so you can hear our conversation. 
And our producers were, were trying to be very conscious about like not burning people out that way. But it was really just kind of a dance to figure out how, how much do they need to film in order to um, get their story across. Um, shifting to sort of the content of the uh, of the project, I guess, at large, what did you learn about what it means to be an American in 2020, 2021 by working on this? It has changed my perspective, I will say. And, and I think um, and I hope that anyone who either watches this, these documentaries, or if you go to the website and just explore the stories on your own, because you can do that. Um, you know, our project is you, you can see you know in, in their entirety any story that anyone has ever uploaded to the project. Oh, wow. Yeah. By just go to PBS.org slash American Portrait. Um, you can see all the prompts uh, that that uh, get people telling stories. That's the basis of the project. So there's these story prompts like, I was raised to believe, dot, dot, dot. And then people send in photos with captions that start with, uh, I was raised to believe, or videos where they start with, I was raised to believe. And you can explore them all on the website. And there's there's different ways to explore them. You can explore them through a map. Um, you can go to your county or your zip code and see like who's contributed from your zip code. You can search through them. And so I think when you do that, if if you look through them, something will emerge for you about what it really means to be American. And for me, seeing all of the stories that came in and be really being able to read or listen to most of them probably, and there are thousands and thousands, a, a pattern did emerge that I think did answer answer for me, you know, what does it really mean to be American? As corny as it sounds, I think that we are just fundamentally optimistic. Mm. Um, we are people who look forward and seldom look back, sometimes to our detriment. And sometimes that optimism is is foolhardy, but it's real that to, almost to a person, you'll hear stories sometimes of, of extreme hardship, especially during the pandemic and the economic collapse. And of course, during the uprising, you know, the, the, the frustration and anger at, at the racism in our country and at, at the systems that perpetuate um, injustice. And still, most of those stories will end with, but I have hope for the future. Hmm. But I believe things will get better or I believe I can make things better. And I think that that might be it <laughs> for me I, to explain, you know, what do we sort of have in common? What is the common thread that runs through all of us? It's that we can make things better, that we can make things better for our own lives or, or for our families, our communities, and that in many ways, better days lie ahead. Maybe we're wrong about that, but that's, I think, uh, what we believe um, as as a people. Yeah. Well, and it, it brings up another question for me that I had as, as I was watching it, and that's the concept of this American dream and, yeah. you know, people talking about their own American dreams and things. And it occurs to me, at least that I'm aware of, I, I've never heard of anyone talk about, you know, a Swedish dream or a Chinese right. dream or, you know, it, it seems to be a uniquely American thing. And you know, I, I wonder, I guess, just what you learned about the American dream as well and, and why it is so uniquely and specifically American. I think that it is the founding idea of the country. I mean, it, it is written into the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. That phrase, that that is what it means to be free, is to be able to pursue, to create the life that it makes you happy, to create the life that fulfills you. Um, and that has been kind of the... Uh, the American story all the way through is expanding 
that access. You know, the people who wrote that phrase meant it only for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but throughout history, we have, it's, it's about trying to make sure that everyone can pursue that. And it, it is it is something that we sort of all agree on, that that is the ideal way of living, is being able to shape your own life and create the life that that is meaningful to you. That is not true everywhere. I mean, it's not true in every culture. You know, we are we are individualistic in that way, in that we say, as individuals, you should determine for yourself what makes you happy and go for it. And if it does, as long as it doesn't hurt other people, it's a good thing. And and we have always kind of been that way, and we're just trying to expand it to to everyone. Um, you know, I think about even if you listen to um, the eulogy that Al Sharpton gave at George Floyd's funeral. Um, where he's talking about take your knee off our neck. He is talking in many ways about the ability to pursue the American dream, saying if you would just get off of us, we would be able to pursue our dreams in the way that we see fit. Um, And you are stopping us from being able to do that through these injustices. And you hear the same thing from from just about everyone, This, this idea of being able to make the life that makes you happy, even if that's very simple, of just having a decent job and a good place to live and, uh, you know, a, a family or, or, or just friendships and, and neighbors, you know, if that's the life that makes you happy, that you should be able to pursue that. But also if you dream of becoming a star, <laughs> that you should be able to pursue that. Or if you dream of, of founding your own business or, you know, starting an airline as Gunner in, in the episode wants to do or becoming a medical doctor as Masa does, um, that, that you should have the right to do that and that the pursuit of that is at its heart a good thing and, and an American thing. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like, I feel like despite sometimes the reality that, you know, we know that those opportunities are not as as available to to black Americans or Latino and Latina Americans or, you know, even women sometimes still. I feel like the version that you present is very inclusive. And I mean, going so far, and you mentioned this, to to have the territories in there, that it's not just the 50 states, but it's Guam, Puerto Rico, and, you know, the Virgin Islands. Like, I, I guess, why did you why did you choose to be inclusive about the American dream and, and sort of the American landscape right now? Well, in, in some ways, it's very purposeful. At PBS, I will say the origins of this project at PBS began right after the events in Charlottesville in 2017 Mm. and uh, trying to figure out, you know, what was the way to respond to this uh, in a a long term way um, that reflects who we really are and who we want to be. And so this project was always conceived as something that said. Um, you know, when we ask the question of what does it really mean to be American today, that we know, even in just from answering, asking that question, that it, that question has nothing to do with blood and soil or, you know, uh, what you look like, um, what the color of your skin, um, that question, none of those things answer that question. Yeah. That question is answered by an idea uh, and values. And that that would be very important is to make sure that, you know, everyone across this country could see themselves somewhere in this project and see themselves in the documentaries on TV. You know, even, you know, if you're if you're living in Guam, you will see you will see people living in Guam. But but, um, you know, every corner of the country and in rural areas and in cities to show that, you know, the things that we have in common, the values that make us American, they transcend all of those um, they, they really are about ideas and things like the American dream of being of, of, of pursuing a life that makes you happy. That is something that cuts across every single 
person who, who lives here. Do you think it's overly optimistic at all, either that notion or or your treatment of it? Like just in, in thinking of sort of the realities on the ground right now, we talked about, you know, racial and gender disparities, but even just, you know, we're all in our own kind of information bubbles right now and, and not, we, we can't agree on basic facts. Everything is so polarized. Like, presenting this this kind of unified vision of you know we're all in this together like i th- i think we need it but i i wonder if you know if people are are going to read that as too cynical if they're going to be cynical towards your vision i guess is what i'm asking they may be but but i think what we're presenting i think what we're presenting is accurate and probably more accurate than the vision of america as being at each other's throats um you know that is really a tiny 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 a portion of this country who really, you know, are angry with other Americans and hate other Americans. You know, most people are just trying to live their lives and doing yeah. the best they can and, and really don't even, you know, think too much about the enemy within or, or anything like that. And so, you know, I think what we're presenting is is not so much an optimistic vision of, of who we can be, but maybe a more realistic vision of are we're, we're we're just people trying to do the best we can across the country and 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 for the most part and almost everywhere you look people are kind yeah. and empathetic and they want to help each other and they don't look at each other and say you know are democrat or republican before i help you or or you know are you red or blue before i'd be nice to you they don't uh, most people just don't um it, that, that in, in many ways is a more warped picture that's created by our um you know our political news ecosystem sure it, it is there though and you know that's it's a tough thing to get around that's you know i, I don't have an answer for it and and i'm glad yeah. that you're i'm glad that you're aware of it and are presenting it in a way that that focuses on what we have in common, I guess, more than our differences, and and that shows that even those of us that are very different from each other, for all sorts of reasons, you know, geography or you know, whatever class, race, that we do have more in common than we have separate. Yeah, and you know, I should mention also that we do have an entire episode. Our fourth episode is entirely about uh, the movement for racial justice in America. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I haven't seen that one yet. So yeah, that, that so one looks we're, awesome. we're just putting the finishing touches on it. But, um, but, uh, you know, that really is about, about the uprising, about this current moment, uh, in the fight for racial justice. And it follows people across the country who are, are really working on it. And, you know, I hope, um, it presents, you know, a realistic portrait of the way things are, but, you know, it's still in the end, there is a fundamental optimism to it because even, um, you know, most of the people in it are activists, are doing, are people who are doing something uh, in their lives or in, in their communities, taking some kind of anti-racist uh, action uh, in their lives and in their communities. And, you know, I think in the end, even that shows a fundamental optimism because to do anti-racist work and to do really any kind of activism is to say that there there could be a better day ahead. You know that there is something worth fighting for that would be better than this, yeah. um, and, and shows a kind of optimism that that we also think is part of the American dream. That that part of the American dream can be, um, you know, not just bettering your own life, but but wanting to better the life of of your community and, and the people around you and, and the people who matter to you, and that that kind of work is is fundamentally optimistic as well. Yeah. I want to ask you on uh, documentary filmmaking and uh, and reality TV. I mean, reality TV, I feel like, has such a, 
it's such a wide spectrum, you know, everything from very verite stuff that, you know, started with things like cops in the real world and, you know, yeah. going all the way to, you know, Survivor and like th- those types of more game show and competition things. But I feel like your career has been mostly rooted in the verite space. Like, what is it about that particular style of storytelling that you think resonates with an audience? Gosh, that is a good question. Um, if anything, I've really been drawn to a kind of first-person storytelling um, where people, uh, where I or through the work that I do with, with lots of other people um, help facilitate other people to be able to tell a story in their own voice. You know, and that kind of first-person narrative, um, you know, people telling the stories of their lives or what's happening in their lives, it is at the heart of what it means to be human. It is it is something that we evolved um, over time, ability to tell tell stories and tell stories about your life and to be able to absorb um, information around the world through other people's stories. And that has always just been very compelling to me. And, and when I see, you know, oftentimes the impact that it has, um, that you know, that kind of storytelling can often have, you know, even more impact than a kind of um, issue advocacy uh, documentary or um, or, you know, even investigative documentaries, which I love, you know, I, you can see how uh, sometimes it has a more personal uh, impact on people uh, and, and gets them to either uh, see the world in a different way or sometimes to take action based on the, the very personal stories that they've heard. Um, that's always been um, really compelling to me. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to want to pry too much into, you know, 20 year old business, I guess. But like, I I feel like there is a fine line, especially I'm thinking mostly of true life of like between sort of empathy and exploitation and like just figuring out sort of that dance, I guess, between like, when are you when are you doing something for shock value? And or, or is or is the shock value not on you? Is that is that a network thing and stuff? And, you know, you're you're just trying to present sort of a human empathetic face to, to whatever the topic is. Yeah, that is a great question. And, and I will say, you know, over the years and that and I've I've been doing this for a long time, like 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 you said, you know, there was that kind of boom time for reality television. You know, it's it's we still have the types of genres, but the real boom time for it when you saw uh you know, content that was more, uh, more about watching people fight, you know, yeah. and at that time, you know, there was a lot of business to be made, uh, making those kinds of shows and money to be made sure. uh, making those kinds of shows. And I was running a production company at that time. And of course, you know, trying to get some of those deals, um, found that I was really bad at it. <laughs> Very bad at it. And I realized that there was a different, there's kind of a different skill to, you know, I won't say sometimes exploit people, but, you know, I know other producers who, who've done it and done it really well, where it's really about heightening, yeah. uh, heightening the the things that are going on in people's lives. And often people are, are super happy to do that. You know, there's, uh, they, they don't feel exploited. They, they feel along the ride and, and part of the process. Um, but I was never good at that, to be honest. The, the thing that I found that I could do was to try to really convey the real situation. And I guess I always had a little too much, maybe pangs of guilt, maybe a little uh, guilt around, you know, 
misrepresenting or pushing people to do things they didn't want to do. Um, you know, there were times, of course, where I had to do that for different projects and either I really stunk at it or, <laughs> or, or just did not feel comfortable doing it and, and never really went in that direction. But I think it is a skill that other people do have and do do it well, oftentimes without, you know, exploiting people. Yeah, it, it is a tough line, but uh, yeah, yeah, and I feel like when when you dive into the content as an audience member, like sometimes just you know the title or the the concept can can feel ostentatious, but once once you actually you know dig into the content and the material, you you do feel empathy for the person and you do understand their world in a in a very different way, which which I appreciate. I, I think that's great. Um, to wrap it all up, just sort of thinking about. You know, having having heard these stories from all over the country and, and absorbed them through this project, what do you see for the next you know year or so? Like as we start getting to the other side of the pandemic, what do you imagine things might look like? Well, it's funny because one of the prompts, one of the story uh, starting prompts that we put out there for people to answer was when this is over, dot, dot, dot. Mm. Um, and we put that out in like, I think June, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, knowing that, you know, it wasn't going to be over anytime soon. Uh, and it, it didn't matter to people. I think that, you know, the, 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 you know, what the date, of course, people want, wanted to be over as soon as possible, but, but when they told their story, um, I don't think they were really thinking about, you know, well, if it's over in the next month, this is what I'm going to do. Right. But what people contributed through that prompt was so interesting, and it really was about the most important things that we're missing because of this pandemic, the connection with with their loved ones, physical connection, hugging. I mean, probably half of the entries to that prompt are basically some version of I'm going to hug people. <laughs> I'm going to hug a lot of people. You know, people's like, I'm going to hug strangers. Um, and, you know, really that desire to just be with one another. And then other people saying, you know, that we hoping that, you know, some of our fundamental values will have shifted um, yeah. uh, because of this. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that, maybe that will be true. Uh, it, it's what people are saying, you know, of course, you know, is it the kind of like new year's resolution that you say and that and don't follow through on, or is it something that has, you know, altered us uh, in some way and in some ways um, that are good, you know, in terms of appreciation for, um, you know, the most important things, our loved ones, the time we spend with each other, um, our friendships, and preserving and valuing those things. Uh, maybe that is what we are moving towards, um, but we'll see. All right, Craig Dentron there. Yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting place to end it. I think especially given the backdrop of everything that's happening in the country. Obviously, he and I spoke a couple of weeks ago. This was back in December before Christmas time. And uh, things have changed. Things have changed just today. But let's hope that Craig is right, that Americans are optimistic and we look out for each other and we will get through this. I'm trying to be optimistic as well. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. Make sure you hit subscribe so that you'll get them in your feed. And I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to join the Quarantine Creatives newsletter, go to HeathRosella.com and your email address. They come out every Sunday. I'll talk to you next Monday, guys. Let's hope it's a better world by then. Stay safe.